Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open to Exodus chapter 33. We'll read the entirety of the chapter this evening, so feel free to be seated. A bit of a longer section this evening. Exodus chapter 33, and we'll be on page 68 if you're using the Pewback Bibles in front of you. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hizzites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, So you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, uh, will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you 
with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take, the, take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Let's pray. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, as we come to your word once more this night, we pray that you will reveal to us its truth, that you will teach us what it is that you would have us to know, that we might come to a better understanding of your glory, your power, your majesty, your might, that we might know our own weakness, our own failings, and that we might see the wonders of grace and mercy in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Be with us tonight, we pray, for we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Most, if not all of you here in this room, know that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Many of you know at least the name of the author, John Newton, but perhaps at least some of you may not know as well his great story of the amazing grace of God in his life. John Newton was born in London, England in 1725 as the son of a shipmaster. His father, by everything we can see, didn't seem to be a Christian, though his mother was. But after his seventh birthday, shortly after his seventh birthday, his mother died. And from that point onward, Newton more or less rejected the gospel entirely. From the age of 11 and onward, he went to sea, at first with his father and then later on in the British Navy. And then after his time in the Navy, he joined a crew of a slaving ship, seeing it as an easy way to make some money. After a number of strange events, however, Newton found himself as a slave in Africa. And within a year of being a slave in Africa, he was miraculously delivered by a friend of his father's. And while on the, that friend's ship, as it was taking him back to England, he was converted. Remembering the gospel that his mother had taught him so long before, he began to read the scriptures, to read the gospels, and he believed. But that wasn't the end of his slaving career. Over the following three years, Newton would go on three more slaving voyages before finally leaving the trade for the ministry. And it was only in later reflections that he recalled this period of time as a period of slowly learning the gospel. But it didn't take long before he came to a realization that what he had been before, what he had seen before as a perfectly fine career was actually an abomination before the Lord. And so he left his work and he repented of his involvement in it. Years later, he would go on to mentor and encourage the great abolitionist William Wilberforce. What John Newton realized regarding his profession, regarding who he had been before his conversion, is something that all Christians have to learn. That the Lord doesn't leave us to our sins when he saves us. Rather, he calls us out of our sin, into repentance, for the sake of his glory. Well, it's this very truth that we find this evening in Exodus chapter 33. As we come to the text this evening, I want us to notice three specific details that are important for our understanding of Israel's sanctification. We've noted repeatedly up until this point the redemptive significance of many of Israel's acts, or rather, God's actions towards Israel. How those actions have pictured his mercy and his grace in the gospel towards them. Last time we saw in chapter 32 that 
Israel, after being redeemed and being in covenant with God, sinned a very great sin by worshiping the golden calf. Significantly, we noted that this worship was likely participated in by both unbelievers and true believers alike, albeit misguided believers. We saw in chapter 32 God's anger and his wrath over their sin, and we noted importantly the temporal punishments that were inflicted upon the people for the sin, the temporal consequences of their sin. And so as we come to chapter 33 this evening, we come to a text that in some sense describes the aftermath of this sin and Israel's response of repentance. There are three details that are important for our understanding here. First, and these will be our three points this evening, but first we're going to see or be given a reminder of who God is, that is, that he is a holy God, and who we are, that is, an unholy people. So we're going to be given a reminder of who God is, a holy God, and who we are, an unholy people. Secondly, we're going to be given a pattern, pattern or a picture of sanctification. We're going to be given a pattern or a picture of sanctification. And then third, we're going to be given a glimpse of glory. We're going to be given a glimpse of glory. These are the details that appear in our text and will be our three points this evening. Jumping into the first, the reminder of who God is and of who we are. We see this on display, particularly in the first few, few verses of chapter 33. In these verses, God speaks to Moses and he tells him to continue on with the people heading towards the land of Canaan, to, to go up from where they're at in the wilderness and to head into the land. We saw last time that this was not God's initial response to the people's sin. Rather, he had intended to wipe them all out for their sin and to begin anew with Moses. But thanks to Moses' intercession back in chapter 32, his intercession on behalf of the people, the Lord relented from this punishment that he had planned. And now, instead, he has said to Moses that he will simply not lead his people up. Or perhaps a better way of understanding this, that he will no longer go up with them living in their midst. So why will he not go up with them? This is an important question for us to know the answer to. The key is in verse 3. Notice what it says. The Lord says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Why? Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Well, these few words, lest I consume you on the way, are packed with significance. What the Lord communicated by them is important for our understanding, just as it was important for Israel's understanding in that moment. In saying these words, God reminds Israel that he is a holy God and they are an unholy people. This is not a new concept to them and it's not a new concept to us. Back in chapter 19, as God began to prepare them for the establishing of his covenant with them, he tells them that they shall become, by the covenant redemption, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. For the past several chapters, we've been reading the rules and the regulations regarding the building of the tabernacle and the consecration of the priests. And in all of those descriptions, one thing was made abundantly clear. The holiness of God was not something to be trifled with. You see, holiness is not something that can be turned off and then turned on again. The reason behind God's words here in Exodus 33, the reason it's so important for Israel and for us, 
is because God's holiness is the foundational requirement of the gospel. If God was not holy, or if his holiness could be selective, then there would be no need for redemption. Because sin, that which is unholy, would not need to be forgiven. It would not need to be atoned for. But because God is holy, and because he cannot allow sin to go unpunished, we are faced with a very great problem. This is the basic point that the Apostle Paul makes in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are deserving of his wrath and his punishment. God's holiness is the great problem of mankind. How are, is it that we are to stand before the holy God of creation and live? The answer is that we can't. For he is a consuming fire. And thus it is that he warns Moses that the people shall go up, but he will not go up with them lest he consume them for their stiff-neckedness. Well, cannot that be said of us? We are sinful men and women, stiff-necked and unwilling to change and depart from our sin. If it was true for Israel, it would be true. Uh, it was true for Israel in that moment, and it was true for Israel later on, and it's true for us today. If you think just a little bit later in the books of the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's vision of God in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this great vision of the Lord on the throne and the the seraphim uh, praising God and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah, when he's confronted with this vision, when he's confronted with the holiness and the majesty of God. What is his response? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When confronted with the thrice holiness of God, Isaiah's only response is woe for his sin. He knows that he is unworthy to stand before this holy God and that he should be consumed. But rather than being consumed by this great fire, what happens? The Lord sends his angel to take a coal from the fire and with it to touch Isaiah's lips, symbolizing his cleansing. The holiness of God was not something that Isaiah or Israel or we can or should take lightly. But just as Isaiah is given hope through the cleansing act or the go-between, so too are we given hope through the cleansing work of our go-between, Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 33 of the book of Exodus, Israel is given hope through their go-between, though we're not there yet. Well, the second thing that we find pictured for us in this text this evening is the great act of sanctification. They're reminded first of God's holiness and their own unholiness, their inability to stand before him. And so secondly, here we see their sanctification process. And there's two parts to this that we see in the passage at hand. First, we see Israel's act of repentance and contrition. We see their act of repentance and contrition. And then secondly, we see their act of worship. So let's note first this repentance and contrition. Moses relays to them the words of this holy God in verse 4. And notice Israel's response. They mourned. Not only did they mourn, but they did not put on their ornaments or their jewelry. And those that had them on took them off, 
You see that in verse 6. Now, there are a couple of things to understand with this. On the one hand, the Israelites refusing to put on their jewelry is symbolic of their mourning. They are, are weeping over this news that God will no longer go up in their midst, that he will no longer dwell among them. This is a great loss to the people of Israel, and so they, they're mourning it. It signifies their sorrow over their sin. It signifies uh, their, their repentance um, as they are reflecting on the anger and displeasure of the holy God. But more than that, remember what it is that Israel offered up for the creation of the idol in chapter 32. Their jewelry. What they're saying in taking off their, their jewelry, taking off their ornaments, as the text puts it, is simple. We will give to God the reverence that we wrongly gave to the golden calf. Matthew Henry notes in regard to this, those that would part with their ornaments for the maintenance of their sin could do no less than lay aside their ornaments in token of their sorrow and their shame for it. It's important that we understand what takes place here. Israel does not, by means of removing their jewels, make atonement for their sin and their rebellion against God. Far from it. But they do, by their actions, demonstrate their sorrow over their sin and their repentance from it. Though they earn nothing by this act, they show visibly and outwardly their sorrow over their sin. We can learn from this. We often in the church today make sin a very private matter, don't we? We sin, often privately. We confess our sin, usually privately, and we repent privately. But one of the things that we get from Israel's example is that repentance from sin should be a public affair. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to publicly confess every sin that we commit, nor does it mean that we need to follow some ritual in order to kind of outwardly show that we have repented. But what it does mean is that our repentance should be demonstrable. It cannot and should not be only inward and private, but noticeable to all who know us well, all who are close to us, who have come alongside us, who live with us. Our repentance is not something to be hidden in shame, though it tells of our sin. It is something to be publicly pronounced that we and the rest of the church of Christ with us may rejoice in the glories of the gospel once more. Our repentance should be a public affair. Practically speaking, this may take many different shapes and forms. Many times the sin that we are repenting of determines the outward changes that demonstrate our repentance. For Israel, that was the removal of their jewels. For someone who has struggled with alcoholism, that might look like avoiding going to bars or even restaurants where alcohol is served. For the thief, it might look like an intentional giving to God above and beyond and making restitution for the things that they have taken. Think of Zacchaeus in the Gospel of Luke. For the liar, perhaps they take extra precautions before they speak at all. In reality, it will look different for every sin and for every individual. For very public sins, it will be a very publicly noticeable change. For more private sins, perhaps a more private change that only those who know us well see. But what is true in both cases is that a change must take place. These acts of contrition are not contrary to the gospel. 
but they are our demonstration of our need for God's grace. A second application here. We must also, on the other side of things, be careful that our acts of repentance and contrition do not lead us to a a place of despair or of continual depression. Though we are great sinners, Christ is a greater Savior. Though we are great sinners, Christ is a greater Savior. We must not be so overwhelmed with our sin that we forget the grace that is given to us in the gospel. While we are to repent, and we should repent, while we should sorrow over our sin, we do so insofar as we look to the gospel and to the grace of Christ, our mediator. For we do not in our actions make atonement. That has already been done. And so we stand rightly before the throne of God because of Christ and because of what he has done for us. So do not be cast into depression over your sin, but rejoice in the freedom and the glory of the gospel that has been given to you in Christ. Well, this leads us to the second half of this picture of sanctification. Not only do the people act in contrition over their sin, in verses 7 through 11, they worship God once more. Now, there's disagreement here uh, in this particular section, these particular verses, on whether or not it was the normal practice of Moses to pitch the tent of meeting outside of the camp, or whether this was in response to Israel's sin, and it symbolized God's departure from their midst for a time. A couple of things on that. First, remember that this is not the tabernacle. The tabernacle has not yet been built. This is a pre-tabernacle tent that was not inhabited by anyone, but was instead used symbolically for the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people before his throne room was constructed, that being the actual tabernacle. Secondly, the ESV interprets verse 7 in a way that would indicate that this may have been the general practice of Moses. Notice how it says it there. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. That God's tent was outside of Israel's camp, uh, it it seems to indicate, uh, the way that reads, that God's uh, tent was outside of Israel's camp until the tabernacle was constructed. But this isn't the only view or the only option. In fact, is a a more modern translation of this. Many have argued that rather than this being the normal practice uh, of Moses and of God, that this particular removal of the tent or this tent being on the outside of the camp was specifically in response to Israel's false worship uh, of the golden calf. Moses moved the tent outside of the camp, keeping with what God had said he was going to do there in the first couple of verses, his refusal to go up in the midst of Israel lest he consume them. And so this makes sense, and I think, in light of the context of what's going on here. And it means that this excerpt is really a continuation of the narrative that we're uh, moving through, rather than exactly that, an excerpt about the tent of meeting. So understanding this, notice what takes place in these verses. Three things that take place that are significant, as one commentator noted. First, although the tent of meeting is removed from within Israel, all of Israel is allowed and made able even to follow this tent still. The people were encouraged to entreat the Lord at this tent, to go out and and to, to seek the Lord and what he would have of them at this tent of meeting, even though it was outside of the camp. Symbolically, God's presence was removed from their midst, but in reality, there he was 
Uh, There in the tent, he was not completely aloof or unreachable through their prayers. Secondly, Moses becomes Israel's mediator in this moment. Notice that. He goes out to this tent, to this uh, pre-tabernacle tabernacle, and he meets with God on behalf of the people. It's during this meeting that the conversation from verses 12 to 22 seems to take place. Whether this was the first conversation or a later one, we aren't sure, but regardless, Moses goes to the tent, the dwelling place of God, and there it is that he makes intercession for his people. What a wonderful picture this is of what it is that Christ does for us. Though we sin, though we fall far short, we have a great high priest who makes intercession for us before the throne of God. And while Moses was but a man making imperfect intercession, Christ is both man and God and makes perfect intercession on our behalf before the throne of grace. Third notice here. That reconciliation takes place between God and his people. Moses would go to the tent and the Lord would descend upon the tent. And when he did so, the people would rise up and they would stand at their doors and they would worship God. Symbolically here, their worship, though coming from a sinful people, was made pleasing to God through the means of the intercessor. So too is our worship. Sinners, though we are, made perfect through our great intercessor. You see, the sanctification is not only about a continual repentance. It's also about our worship. Through our worship, imperfect though we are, imperfect as our worship may be, we are encouraged and we are built up, coming to know Christ in an even greater way, being reminded of the grace and the mercy that is given to us in his word being told again and again the wonders of the gospel. Do you want to hate your sin more? Do you desire to love Christ in a greater way? Do you desire to be sanctified? Well, the most important means by which you can do this is through the worship of your God. Sanctification is a work that takes place day in and day out, but the most important times of the week in our sanctification take place on the Lord's Day in corporate worship. The applications to this are many, but note just two. Note first, that this means that we ought not take lightly such an important opportunity. If this is the most important time of the week for our sanctification, for our growing in grace, we cannot take it lightly. We cannot be dismissive of it. If our Sabbath worship is the place wherein we are most sanctified, then we should desire, uh, then should not our desire be to attend that worship morning and evening every single week, no matter what. If we truly desire to be holy as God is holy, then we must not neglect his times of worship. And then note secondly, that we ought to prepare for this time of worship by being careful to entreat the Lord throughout the week. Although this time, this this moment of corporate worship is the greatest time for our sanctification, the throne of God is approachable through prayer at all times. Though it was when Moses went to the tent of meeting that God descended in the pillar of cloud, the people were able to go to the tent and pray to the Lord and seek his will at at, uh, at any time of day or night. We should as the people of Israel, and presumably the true believers that were in Israel did, approach 
the tent of meeting and make supplication to God that he might work in us and through us by his Holy Spirit. That he might prepare us for our Sabbath worship. That he might sanctify us in the day in and the day out. That he might give us a a double portion of his spirit as we hear the gospel proclaimed yet again each and every week. This is sanctification. It's the process of sanctification. The means that God uses for sanctification. Well, all of this brings us to our third and our final point this evening. The glimpse of... Of glory. In the second part of Moses' conversation with God, after Moses has made intercession, after the people have been reconciled to God and, and the Lord agrees to go up in the midst of the people once more, Moses asks that he might see God's glory. There, verse 18. Now, of course, as we read not too long ago, God says that Moses' ask is impossible, for man cannot see God. And live. But the Lord, being gracious beyond measure, hides Moses in the cleft of the rock until he passes by, allowing Moses to see his back. Now, whether this was a literal form that Moses was allowed to see, uh, whether it was some sort of reflection as the elders saw on Mount Sinai back in chapter 24, or whether this was simply symbolic of uh, a dimmer glory that was observed by Moses, we don't really know. But there is in this, uh, in this narrative, in this uh, instance, an important reminder for us. It should be our desire every time that we worship that we might catch but a glimpse of the glory of God. Our heart's desire should be to see this wondrous glory. It is the reason that we were created, and it should be our greatest desire in life. While we yet live in this mortal flesh, we cannot see it, not in its truest sense, not in its truest form. And we do look forward to that day when we will see it in heaven, in all of its glory. But we are here now, in this life, by the grace of God, giving glimpses of this glory as Moses was that day. The Apostle Paul Writing on this very thing, notes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. How is it that we see this glory? How can we catch a glimpse of this glory? Well, it's in the worship of our God. It's in the worship of our God. In our worship, we see the depth of our need and we see the heights of his grace. In our worship, we come to know the great work of mercy that leads to our redemption. In our worship, we see sin's defeat and we see our sanctification. In our worship, we enjoy fellowship and communion with believers from all different backgrounds. And spiritually, we enjoy communion with believers all over the world. In our worship, we meet with God as his presence dwells among us. And though we are not able to fully know, not here, not now, though we cannot yet see the face of God, we are in our worship, by our sanctification, and through the intercession of Christ, given a glimpse of the glory of God. What an incredible thing that is. How much more wonderful will it be When we do indeed see God face 
to face. Let's pray. Our most gracious, good, and loving Heavenly Father, we're reminded in this text of your mercy once again, your mercy to your people Israel, though they had sinned very greatly in your sight, though they had angered you because of their sin, we see that you were gracious and merciful to them by means of Moses' intercession on their behalf. And, O Lord, we know that Moses was but a picture of that greater intercessor, Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf, through whom we are able to come and cry, Abba, Father. And so, O Lord, even as we look to this story, we look to this, this historical recounting of these events in the lives of your people Israel, remind us and encourage us that we can approach your throne boldly, not by our own merit, not by our own means, not by our own contrition, but by the finished work of Christ on the cross. And, O Lord, even as we are reminded of that, build us up in our sanctification. Give us a desire for your holy law. Give us a desire to serve you. Give us a longing to know your presence in our midst. And, O Lord, as we worship, build us up in Christ. And give us a greater glimpse of his glory for the praise of your most blessed name. We pray it all in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.